0: Last week we talked about pride and how pride, which is at the heart of sin, leads necessarily to a desire for freedom. And this is a kind of freedom. In fact, I had a great chat with, uh, with Will over the break and, and, and we, we, I recognize that freedom is a word that's used within Christianity to mean something very specific. This is a different kind of freedom. This is the way that the secular modern world wants to think about freedom, which really, and this is the word that Will suggest—it is a lawlessness. It's something that wants to say no to all laws, to all limits. And this kind of freedom is, uh, by its nature, antithetical to Christianity because it's a kind of freedom that wants to rewrite reality. It's the desire for a freedom that rejects the natural limitations of life and nature and existence and it's the kind of desire for freedom, for complete freedom, that led Satan in the, uh, the poem Paradise Lost that I talked about last week to utter those insane words that it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. It's an obsession with freedom that rejects ultimately God, God as being the Lord of all and wants to put us on his throne. We then discussed how this desire for freedom results in us wanting to assert our ownership over everything and everyone this is because anything that we don't own has a right to exist in the world in a particular way and that means that there's a proper way a right way for us to respond to it and if there is a particular way that we have to respond to something then that demonstrates the fact that we don't have complete freedom over it because there's something that we should do and real freedom this kind of crazy lawless freedom shouldn't have to respond to things in any particular way at all. It should be able to respond however it wants and to do whatever it wants. Therefore, this kind of perverse idea of freedom means that we treat things and people as if they belong to us. And this is what we call the minefield. So now today we move on to part two, uh, which this week I want to talk specifically about how this uh, approach to the world manifests itself in the way that we see and treat people. Because this is where it gets really damaging. Uh, this week's session is called No Mere Mortals and it's based off a quote from C.S. Lewis, which we'll talk about later on. Last week I started with a passage from 1 Corinthians and we'll start again today with a passage from 1 Corinthians. And this time it's from chapter 6. So if you have a Bible there and you want to open it up, we'll be going right from the start of chapter 6. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. Corinthians When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why do you not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Some big stuff in that passage. That is uh that is a loaded passage and i think a lot of the way that we read it can be quite contextual depending on what we're going through at any given moment we might read it and certain things would kind of stick out to us certain things would kind of be highlighted to us and we'd read them in certain ways obviously this passage is really suggesting that inside a church and by that it's really talking about a group of believers because remember this is paul writing to the church in corinth inside a church problems should be sorted out internally Obviously, what is going on here is that there's some Christians that are taking to each, each other to court, and that's what Paul is addressing in the letter. And the court is not a part of the church structure. <clears throat> but the part that has always stood out the most to me, and probably because it's the most brutal, and I kind of just, for some, whatever reason, really like brutal things, and also it's very, very countercultural, uh, and I like that stuff as well, is the last part, verse 7. This is what it says. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See while the verse is essentially talking about the fact that disputes should be resolved internally, it's like at this point Paul is kind of annoyed that he even has to bring this up, like he's he's annoyed that it's even come up. I feel like you can kind of see the real important part of the passage in this bit. He's kind of saying why are you even fighting in the first place? And that's a really good question a question that I think could have a lot of valid answers. I mean, we might read that verse and we might start to come up with valid answers for ourselves, for our own situations, right? Oh, but this and this and this and this. But then Paul does something that we find maybe a little bit irritating. He takes away our valid answers. You see, Paul isn't saying, you Christians, you shouldn't be hurting and offending each other. Of course, he believes that, but that's not the point that he's making just here. Look at what he says. He says, He's not addressing the perpetrator of the alleged uh, wrongdoing. He's addressing the victim. This is so countercultural, perhaps, and so brutal that I think a lot of the time we kind of gloss over it, we read over it, and we think, oh, not in my situation, right? I mean, look at what he says. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? That is a massive thing. Rather than taking up your issues with someone who has offended you, why not rather just suffer it? That's a huge challenge, and I think it's a good one. I think it's an important one to think about. Now, at this point, you could be thinking a lot of things. It's quite possible that at least a part of you is thinking, but Diff, there are some things that really should not just be suffered. Some things really do need to be sorted out. Some people really are wrong and really do need to be told about it, and I'm the one to do it, (laughs) right? Maybe not that last one, but... A lot, I mean, that's quite possible that that's what you're thinking, right? Well, there's some things that sh- we shouldn't just kind of sweep under the carpet. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here for a start. But secondly, yeah, it's true. Some things really are a big deal. Some things really do need to be dealt with. Some things uh, need to not just be suffered. But I wonder how true it is for all of the things that we apply that to. We can be quite selective and say, You know, these things that I'm suffering, these aren't the things that Paul's talking about. In other words, yes, some things are a big deal, but not many things. And we have the capacity to make big deals out of things that a lot of the time, maybe they're not. Now, how does all of this connect to the point of seeing people as objects that we own? Because that's what we were talking about last week. Um, I talked about this word, a and this way of seeing things and seeing people as objects that we kind of want to assert ownership over. Well, I think that one of the main reasons that we get offended is because of this going on. What is happening when we're getting offended? Some thing did something that we thought it shouldn't do. Or something or some person didn't do something that we thought it should do. See, Paul's not saying, get over it. I don't think that that's what he's saying. He's not saying, ah, just get over it. Don't don't think about it. Don't worry about it. I think he's more so saying... Maybe the issue isn't what you think it is. Maybe, just maybe, uh, you've seen this situation wrongly. And that's the challenge that I want to kind of address today, is this recognition that we don't see the world right. We see the world through our own fog of circumstance and history and past. And we jump to conclusions and make assumptions about things all the time. And Paul is kind of suggesting here, why not just calm down a bit? Why not just think for a moment? Why not consider what's really going on? If you're finding this a tough thing to swallow at the moment, hopefully as we go on, it's going to make a bit more sense. Uh, I know it could come across a bit challenging, but I think that that's important. I think that's an important thing. think that, the truth sometimes hurts, but then also the truth sets us free. And so there are challenges there uh, that I don't want you to tune out. Um, I pray. My prayer is that God would, would speak to you the way that you need to be spoken to. Um, and we all have issues with this in different ways. So this idea of ownership really always ends in control. That which we own, we should be able to control. This is why we get angry at a barking dog, right? If you own a dog and the dog barks, you don't always get angry at it. In fact, you're very happy when the dog barks if it's a guard dog and there's an intruder. You give it a thumbs up for that. Good move, good barking, thank you very much. And maybe another time, if you've trained your dog to speak on demand and then your mates come around and you get it to speak and then it does it and you're like, yeah, high five, well done dog, Right? So it's not the barking necessarily that's the issue, but in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep and the baby's trying to sleep and the dog's barking, then all of a sudden the barking becomes an issue. So you can see the thing itself is not the issue. It's not barking that's a problem. It's about your control over the situation. It's not what I want. It's not when I want it. Barking itself is not the problem. The problem is control. When I was working at uh, Tomba City Church uh, in the video department, I made, I don't know, probably thousands of videos. I don't know of sermons and people talking and stuff but there was one in particular that always stuck with me by a guy called Edgar Meyer who's a local pastor and he uh, said this thing that has stuck with me and really impacted me at the time and it's always stayed with me and that's this. That's it. The issue is never the issue. The issue is always control. I think that if you just kind of dwell with that for a moment you can kind of see the way that that really works. A lot of the time we make something about an issue but the thing that's really going on is the way that it's impacting me and the way that it's impacting me is that I don't have control over it. The crazy thing about trying to control people is it's impossible. You can't control people. For me, I think that one of the things that this kind of demonstrates is what is so amazing and terrifying about marriage. I mean, this is something that I really grappled with when I was... Going to get married to my wife. I kind of realized that what I was really saying was I'm going to give myself to this person and I have no control over the way that they respond to that. You know, people change. Right? That's a little bit scary. I think there should always be a little bit of uh, not a bad not a not a bad trepidation, but a little bit of the weight, the weightiness of what marriage really is. I mean, you're you're saying I'm going to rely on uh, on this person who I can't control. But that's why I think it's so important that marriages aren't built upon emotions for each other, but built upon Christ, because Christ is the unchanging thing in a marriage. Christ is the thing that maintains that marriage to be able to go through and past those changes. So control over people is impossible. And I think that all of us have control issues. I think everyone does in a little way. I mean, I kind of said that last week when we talked about the fact that if pride is the root of all sin, we all sin, and therefore there's control going on in all of us in different ways. I've got a couple of questions here that maybe might help to kind of um, flesh out for you whether or not you have control issues, just in case you think you don't. First of all, how, how do you go with accepting authority? How do you go with people being an authority over you? This is a bit of a loaded question because I think that there are times to not accept authority. But I think that they're probably few and far between. There are times that, you know, uh, conscientiously kind of objecting about things is the right thing to do. But that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about just general situations of authority uh, in life. How are you... Are you okay with the fact that some people are above you at work, at home, uh, in church, in the government, in the law you okay that some people are above you in skills and talents and intellect and wisdom and strength in everything? Are you okay with this fact that people are above you? And I would say you probably are. I'd say uh, you're probably okay about it with a lot of things. It's easy actually to accept the authority of people above us that are demonstrably better than us or who are in power over us or we agree with what they say anyway or we don't care about what they say anyway that's easy authority to accept we can all accept that right in other words i don't mind the police being an authority over me because i don't have anything to hide or fear from them right it's also easy for me to accept the financial leadership in my job i work here at the school and there's obviously a whole bunch of people who are in charge of the finances at the school here and i'm totally okay with them being in charge of that because i would be terrible at that they can do what they do, and I, I, I'm fine with that. I don't want to be involved with that. So it's easy to accept this kind of authority, but it's far less easy to accept authority when we think we know better than people. And don't we always know better than people? right? Isn't it kind of easy for us to be able to look on the outside of the situation and find all of the problems, particularly in hindsight, and say, well, if they just listened to me, then that wouldn't have happened, and that wouldn't have happened, and I could see that coming. Very hard to accept authority when we think we know better. It's also easy to accept authority if we think that it's valid authority. In other words, we accept authority that we accept. And we don't accept authority that we don't accept. And that might sound like it kind of goes without saying, but actually that's a really silly thing if you think about it. To accept that which you accept doesn't mean you're accepting authority. It means you're accepting yourself. It means you're accepting your own authority to determine who should be an authority over you. Right? It's actually accepting our authority to deem which authorities should be listened to. You don't get out of having control issues if there are just some things you don't care about. That doesn't mean that you don't have a control issue. It's the things that you do care about that will manifest the issues, not those things that you don't care about. What about this? Do you need to know everything? you need to be in the know. Do you have to have knowledge about the inner workings of things? Do you get frustrated when decisions are made without you being consulted? Well, of course, there are times that you should be consulted. Times where it makes sense for you to have a say in a situation and for you to know what's going on. And they are the times that you actually do have control over a situation. So. For example, once again with me in my situation, I've got a boss, Mr. Brown, the principal here, and Mr. Brown needs to know everything that happens in the school. I don't. I don't need to know everything that happens in the school. I've got another boss, Mrs. Budden. She needs to know everything that's going on in the high school. I don't. I don't need to know that. Why is it okay for them to need to know it? Because it's their responsibility. They are not control freaks because they need to know everything about the school. It's actually their job to know everything about the school and they need to know that in order to be able to be in control in the right way. It's not a control issue for someone who is legitimately in control to need to know stuff, but it is totally a control issue for me, an ordinary teacher, to feel like every decision that the school makes needs to kind of go through me first. I need to you know, give it my tick of approval before it happens. And it's not like people, I don't think people necessarily operate like this openly, but I think that this is the, these are the inner things that go on in people's minds. And they're often the things that they go home and then sit around the table and kind of talk to their spouse about, right? Oh, those people out there, they don't know what's going on. But the, the real fact is you don't know what's going on because you don't know all of the things. People in authority make decisions and they have information that you don't have. What about this? Not just needing to know, but needing to be heard. This is a tough one because it's something that we kind of say, right? Oh, I just need my voice to be heard. I just need to be heard in this situation. I just want to feel like I'm heard. What is that? Is that I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. I'm just saying sometimes things that we think are good should be questioned just for the sake of making sure that, it is good, that there's not bad mechanisms going on in there. And I think that this is an interesting one because why? Why do we need to be heard? Well, maybe it comes from a good place. Maybe we need to be heard because we've got a really good idea that we think is really going to help people and that's going to be really good for this situation. But then the question becomes, well, what happens after you're heard if they reject your idea? I mean, if if you are heard and then they say, okay, thanks but no thanks, we're not going to go that way, And then you get really riled up and and, and angry about that. Well, you didn't need to be heard. You needed to be obeyed. That's what was really going on there. And then you got frustrated when it didn't happen. A lot of what I'm talking about here with accepting authority is actually about finding faults. It's easy to find faults, particularly when you don't know everything that's going on. Something looks like a terrible decision until you find out this, this and this and all of a sudden like, oh, that made sense. But you don't need to know this, this and this and so you just go around seeing everyone's terrible decisions all the time. There's a little phrase I want to use to discuss this and it's this, big pictures impact little pictures. Think about it like this. Let's say you go to an art museum and there's a huge picture on the wall, maybe five by five metres and you've got to stand about 10 metres back in order to take the whole thing and to see the whole thing if you walk right up close to that and instead of looking at the 5 by 5 meters you look at a little square of 5 by 5 centimeters you're not going to see the whole picture in fact you're going to see something very very different and it's probably going to look really ordinary when you're that close to a painting you start to see the flaws you start to see the problems You start to see what is expected. You start to see exactly what you should see, which is human error, right? But when you walk back and you see the whole picture, all of that human error, it's still there, but it's okay because it's about the big picture. It's about what we can actually see. They are expected. Human error is always going to exist. If you look hard enough, you will find it everywhere. The question is whether or not you need to. What this means is when you realise that there is a common goal, a team purpose, an end destination, and you recognise the way that everyone plays a different part in that and they play that in a different way. In other words, when you're looking at the big picture, the little things disappear. And I think this really matters because we nitpick on little things when we're not seeing the big picture. It happens at home in your family it happens with me and my kids, I nitpick on tiny little things because I forget the big picture. I forget my relationship with my daughter at the time when she wants cereal at 3 o'clock in the morning. That was my morning this morning. It was great. She didn't get it. <laughs> I said she had to wait till the sun got up. But that's pretty late these days, so I still gave it to her before the sun got up. But that's okay. You know, got to compromise. I think of it like this, right? There's no such thing as a perfect triangle, there's no such thing as a perfect circle, there's no such thing as a perfectly straight line. If you zoom in on anything close enough, you're going to start to find issues. You're going to start to find blemishes, inaccuracies, and mistakes. But the next thing that we have to recognize here is that the desire for control always leads to conflict. When two people who want control meet, conflict erupts. And the strange thing is, if you have conflict in your life, if you find yourself in a lot of conflict then you'll realise that you don't, the one thing you don't have any control over is the other person in your conflict situation. In fact, that's probably the reason the conflict is there. If you had control over them and they just did what you said, there wouldn't be any conflict. The world would be a better place if everyone just did what I said, right? That's kind of the way that we, we kind of default to thinking without realising a lot of the time. This can be infuriating, but you know, in a kind of nicely brutal little statement, C.S. Lewis reminds us that pride is by its nature competitive. The more issues that you have with prideful people, the more likely it is that you're a prideful person. The more issues that you have with control freaks, the more likely it is that you're a control freak. Pride hates pride in other people and control hates other people in control. But in a conflict situation where you don't have control over anyone else, there is someone that you do have at least a little bit of control over, and that's yourself. I think that's why Paul is talking to the victim here and not the perpetrator, because who has the control over the situation? It's not like Paul is like, yeah, hurt all the people you like. He deals with that and deals with it far more in his other letters and in other places in Corinthians as well. But he's not saying you as the victim, you're just a victim. He's talking to the person who has control in the situation over themselves. He's not just saying get over it, but it is a bigger question that I think he's asking. Why do you care? Why does this matter? Does this really matter? Yes, if someone has properly hurt you, then you should care. But this leads to a bigger question and a more uh, brutal question, particularly these days. The question really is did someone really? truly hurt you or do you want to be offended now you might think that that's a that's crazy who would want to be offended who who likes being offended but i'm a high school teacher i see this every day right sam's a high school teacher as well she knows kids love drama and i refuse to accept that when 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 students graduate all of a sudden they transform into these mature adults that no longer love drama right i think if i see something in a student It exists in adults. Uh, I refuse to accept that the common misconception that adults grow out of the stupid behaviour that teenagers have, even though we would like to think that that's what happens. They don't. What adults have done is they've grown excuses. They have better ways of hiding it. That's all. Teenagers aren't more evil than adults. They're just less clever at getting away with their evil. (laughs) Sorry <laughs> if that's... They're also put into far more stressful situations than most adults usually are, right? Like, I imagine if we could get 30 adults in a room together five days a week without choosing who they sit next to, I think exactly the same issues would come up as ha- come up with kids. My point is that if I see it in high school, I think it still exists in adults. And people most certainly choose to be offended. Some people love to feed off the drama, and I think Paul is a little bit talking to this as well. Obviously, I'm kind of pushing what Paul has said out into some practical examples. So I'm not saying this is exactly what Paul was meaning, but I think that it relates to that. Here's the crazy thing about this word offence though, right? Offence has got nothing to do with what someone did. It is 100% about the way that we feel. That's what the word means. I'm not saying the feeling is illegitimate. I'm just telling you what the definition of the word is. And by the way, this, if you follow politics and stuff, this is what all the uproar is about Section 18C of the uh, Anti-Discrimination Act right? The, the Act is a law against racial discrimination and 18c in particular is about things that are likely to offend and people have got an issue with that because how do you gauge what is likely to offend until after the fact someone puts their hand up and says, I'm offended. The issue, of course, is that offence is subjective in the true meaning of the word, that is, is experienced by subject. This doesn't mean, and I hope that you can kind of track with me here, this doesn't mean that some things are not objectively wrong. I'm not talking about the thing that was done. There is real right and wrong. Stealing is wrong. But if you accidentally steal something when you're going through the checkout at Coles and you forget to scan it and put it in your bag, that's very different. A person who does that is not guilty in the same way as someone who purposefully steals. But the language of offence wants to treat people as guilty regardless of their intent. Right? It's kind of what it means. In other words, offence is taken, it's not given. And you can tell that this is true, right? Because there's some people that you could try to offend as hard as you want and they just don't get offended. I, I find those people and try my best at school here. It's good fun. And they're just like, no, nah, it's not. It's just water off a duck's back, right? And there's other people who get offended by anything, You know, you look at them the wrong way and that's it. You're going to hear about that in an email, right? (laughs) Things that are clearly not intended to be offensive. And and my point here is just to demonstrate the fact that it's about the way that we respond to things. It's not necessarily about the things that happen. It's not saying that some things aren't legitimately wrong, but offense is about reaction. So what's at stake here in this question of why we get offended? And that's a really good question to ask. Often we're going to be offended when someone says or does does something which emotionally hurts us and that is totally legitimate. It's a legitimate feeling to have. I'm not trying to delegitimize the feeling. The question becomes what do we do with that feeling? And this is where I think that there's a couple of practical things that we can talk about. Every case is different. It's (coughs) It's impossible for me to talk to all of you individually about your situations. And I think... Talking about something like this, everyone in here can think of a time that they've been offended. Everyone in here can probably think of a time that they've offended someone else. Interestingly enough, probably the time that they've offended someone else, they were like, oh, it wasn't my fault. I didn't mean it. They just took it the wrong way. And then the time that they were offended, they said, oh, that that, that person definitely meant it, right? But I can't really talk specifically to your situations, but I can talk to you. And so I just want to give kind of two practical things about the way that we respond to stuff. Here's the first one give the benefit of the doubt. This should probably be pretty self-explanatory. And the best way to explain it is with an example, once again, for me as a teacher, right? So teachers can be the biggest hypocrites in the world. We expect things from our kids that we just don't expect from ourselves. Happens all the time. And if you remember your school days, maybe you remember that, right? I mean, a teacher has a terrible weekend, the kids are sick, doesn't get any sleep on the Monday night, kind of confusedly goes through the first two periods of school, but really is behind the April ball massively, really looking forward to heating up uh, morning tea and getting a coffee and stuff and just trying to get settled. But then in the kitchen at break time is every other worker in the place, none of them who seem to work very hard compared to you, right? And then... You know, so you can't get to your coffee and you just eat a cold sausage and you're just, you know, drinking a glass of water and you're, the, you're trying to print out the resources for the lesson and the printer jams up and then you try to grab your laptop and it falls out and it kind of cracks a bit and you think, oh, now I'm going to have to go and talk to IT about that. And eventually you hurriedly run down to your classroom. My classroom's down there 10D, so that's where I'm pointing. A run down there, and this happens to me all the time. run down there and the kids are waiting like, hey, Mr Crowther. And you get down and you're like, oh, sorry, sorry I'm late, sorry. And they're like... Yeah, we don't care. It's fine. It's 10 minutes we didn't have to do class. That's great. Thank you very much. You can be late anytime you want, right? You go in there and then you start the lesson. And then the next day, you've got your life back together again. You had a decent night's sleep and you're ready to go. And you're like, yes, I'm going to nail this teaching thing. And you go down to your classroom and you start teaching. And then three minutes after the bell, a kid walks in. And what do you do? You unload. (laughs) How dare you be late to my class? I don't care what your excuse is. It doesn't matter what your excuse is. You shouldn't be late to my class. Now, my students will know I don't do that to them. Isn't that right? Because I genuinely believe, I do genuinely believe that we should give the benefit of the doubt. Think about it like this. Maybe for you, you're emotional at work. You just can't get your head in the right place because of stuff going on at home. And you know you're not doing as much work as you should, but you just can't think straight. Two days later, things have come down and you're fine, but you've really noticed that slacker down the hall who still hasn't got that report to you that was due two hours ago, right? And needless to say, you're furious. You can see the point. When things aren't going well for us, we would appreciate a certain kind of treatment. But when things are going well for us, we expect things are going well for everybody else as well. And this is what I mean when I say give the benefit of the doubt. Someone's late for a meeting, you don't know why, so give them the benefit of the doubt assume the best of someone not the worst someone says something that offends you give them the benefit of the doubt assume the best of them assume that they didn't mean it assume that you misinterpreted it choose not to be offended by thinking highly enough of the person that they weren't trying to offend you i think that this is an important thing to kind of say sometimes you can choose not to be offended like Sometimes the world tries to tell us that we're just kind of subject to our emotions and wherever our emotions go, we just have to follow those emotions and there's nothing we can do about it. But that's not true. That's not correct. We can actually participate in trying to see things a different way. We don't have to jump to being offended every time. So much conflict in your life would be avoided if you assumed the best of people. But we don't do it we assume the worst of others and we want everyone else to assume the best of us. We rage when people cut us off when we're driving and then when we're late, 10 minutes late, we're cutting people off all over the shop and we rage at them when they rage at us. We're saying, don't you know how busy I am? Of course they don't know how busy you are. They're another person in a car, right? They don't know, just like you don't know how busy they are when they cut you off. So you don't have to have this knee-jerk reaction to think that everyone in the world is a jerk except for you. The fact is, everyone that we meet has a complex, damaged, painful past. Everyone that you see was somewhere else an hour ago. Doing something else was somewhere else two hours ago. Everyone that you meet had a sleep last night that was good or bad. Everyone that you meet has stuff going on in their family that you don't know about. It's not as if people start to exist as soon as they come into your field of vision, but that's what the mind field kind of tempts us to believe. People only matter. In fact, kind of people even only start to exist when they have some kind of bearing upon us, and that is simply not true. As complex as you are, as bad as your morning was, as sick as your kids are, as messed up as your family is, as bad at communicating your real meaning as you are, as sinful as you are, as prideful as you are, as deserving of grace and mercy and love as you are, so is everyone else that you ever meet. So give them the benefit of the doubt. Give them what you would want. Treat them the way that you would want them to treat you, which, by the way, is what Jesus asks us to do, right? Love others as you want them to love you. The second way to break this unconscious approach to seeing people as things that you own is to meet people where they're at and nothing has taught me this more than having kids how many of our issues with our kids are there because we want them to be something that they're not they're just not there it's all well and good to have a vision for what you want your kids to be but I mean, my wife Kaylin and I say this to each other all the time and I really need to be reminded of it. There's so many times where I'm getting frustrated at one of my kids because I'm expecting a three-year-old to be a ten-year-old. That's insane. There's so many times that I've, last night, (laughs) six hours ago probably, had disagreements because I'm demanding a two-year-old to have the reasoning capacity of a six-year-old. I'm the one being unreasonable in that situation, right? And the way that this operates with our kids is the same way as it operates with everyone else. We have got to meet people where they're at. Someone at work that you work with is incompetent at something that you think they should have mastered. Well, sitting there and bagging them out behind their back is not going to change anything. Meet them where they're at. If you've got a vision for where you want someone to be, go to where they are and work with them. They're not going to change by themselves. Meet them at their level. This is what Jesus did for us. He came down to our level. He condescended, without, he condescended to us without being condescending. That's what love does. Love doesn't just sit up on a pedestal and demand that people somehow manage to get up to our level. It jumps off the high place and it goes to the low place to meet people where they are and then together, side by side, facing a common goal together, it helps them to move forward. In everything that I'm saying here, I'm not saying that you shouldn't disagree. It's not that there aren't things worth disagreeing about. But maybe, hopefully, this helps you to see that there's a lot of things that aren't worth disagreeing about. And even for the things that we think are worth disagreeing about, this totally changes the way we go about it. It changes your motivation. It changes your approach. And it changes the end goal. The end goal in a disagreement, always now becomes about restoring right relationship with someone rather than the other way, which is about winning. Disagreements become about who wins rather than finding truth together as brothers and sisters. I'm sure you've heard the phrase innocent until proven guilty. Well, that should be our approach as well. Even that, even that small thing would make such a huge difference in our lives and the lives of everyone that we interact with. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Love people. Meet them where they're at. Give up your desires for control, which are just illusory anyway. You don't really have control over anything. You just kind of think you do. And a lot of the time when when, when um, disagreements come up or issues come up for us, all that is, is us having the illusion shattered. You never had the control in the first place. It's now all of a sudden you've just realized it. So give... Up these desires for control. Stop looking for errors and flaws. But you know what? Innocent until proven guilty actually doesn't cut it for us either because it didn't cut it for Jesus. Jesus didn't say looking down at humanity, well, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'll treat them as innocent until I prove them guilty. We're guilty. He went way further than that. Jesus doesn't say innocent until proven guilty. Jesus says innocent even when guilty. That's what he did for us. And let's not forget something that sometimes can be easy to forget in church, which is sad. But our call is to be like Jesus, to treat people the way that he treated us. Jesus said innocent even though guilty. In other words, to paraphrase Paul, Jesus said, I'm not going to take him to court. I'd rather be offended. And you think about what happened at the cross? I think that's a pretty good, I mean, obviously offended is a really shallow bad word for what happened there, but think about how much more more it is. See, when Paul says this, he's not asking us to ignore justice. It's not about that. It's not about ignoring justice. But he is asking us and reminding ourselves to die to ourselves, to die to our pride, our ambition, our desire to own things, and our desire to have control over people. We need to see people and say, innocent, even when guilty. Why? Why should we do this? Why should we rather be offended? Well, the reason that we have to ask this question in the first place is just because we aren't seeing reality properly. We aren't seeing people for what they truly are. The minefield of modernity tempts us not to see people, but to see this person as entertainment, this one as pleasure, her is a good time. This guy is money. That guy is a promotion, a servant, a slave, a joke, a toy, a plaything. This way of thinking doesn't help us to see people properly. But that's those things, that's not what people are. C.S. Lewis says it like this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendours. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbour, the person sitting next to you, the person who you have conflict with, the person who is frustrating, that person is the holiest object presented to your senses. That's what people really are. This is why it matters. People are not things. People are immortal. People are what life is all about. Our desires for control, especially control over people, are hellish. They are echoes of Satan's foolishness, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs us to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We don't bring his kingdom by setting up our own little hell here on earth with us in charge. His kingdom comes when we give up our desires for control and when we see people rightly, when we see them the way that he sees us.